Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. Seton's in Walterboro. Uh, we've got a lot to get through that's uh, happened as the defense presents its case here as we are in the fifth week of the Alec Murdoch double murder trial. And we may be hearing from Alec Murdoch. He may be on the stand on Thursday. We'll get to that in a little bit, but let's go back to some of the things that have come up since the last episode dropped. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday evening. And uh, Seton, a little admonishing by the judge to you know, the events team members. Yes, I guess uh, Jim Griffin uh, took to Twitter and retweeted a Washington Post article, which kind of questions maybe some of the investigation done by SLED. And the judge did not seem very happy about this. And, you know, he, he fessed up that he did do this retweet. Uh, and I think I don't think he's going to be tweeting again. Let's just no, put it that way. That's probably a good move. I mean, when your case is going on, it's probably... You know, a lot of people shouldn't be tweeting, but um, it's a good time when you have a case going on not to ruffle the feathers of the judge or do anything that might seem inappropriate. I don't know how the why the ruling was what it was, how you, why you can't retweet or anything, but better safe than sorry. And you're right about that. Uh, we have also the appearance of Buster Murdoch, who took the stand uh, for the defense. And just what, what did you think of his overall presentation? You know, it's so weird because I go back and forth. I mean, I didn't think he was overly emotional, uh, but I was listening to it because I was running errands. I wasn't in court on Tuesday. I was there today. And I didn't see, I guess he did get choked up at some points, but I didn't feel like he came across as overly emotional. I've heard some people say that, and I watched it, and then I watched some of it again. If you watch it, most of the testimony did not get into any gruesome details about the murders. It, it wasn't like they were presenting pictures or talking about things that would be disturbing. It, it was all more matter-of-fact questions about where he was, what happened through the day. So the opportunity or the moments that might have been emotional, I just don't think were there. 
I think that is very fair. And also watching him in court throughout the past couple of weeks, he seems very nervous. He is biting his nails. He clearly doesn't like to be in the spotlight and is uncomfortable. Well, let's, I mean, the fact that he lost his mother and his brother through all accounts, very, very close. He's going to lose his dad in one way or another. It's, it's hard not to feel for Buster. And I think that he did a, he was a good witness for a few reasons. One, he didn't claim to remember everything. If he was questioned, he would go, I, I don't remember. Um, and also, he just seemed really sincere in his answers. And people are saying, why didn't the prosecution go after him and say, but you weren't there. and Your dad's a liar. Like, I just don't think that would have worked with the jury because I think he's a sympathetic witness. Yeah. So let's get into some of his testimony. A, a couple of things that stuck out to me was he said that Alec changed his clothes frequently and he would shower. Mm. The biggest thing that I took away was the parking at Almeda. We know now that this timeline that the prosecution has put forth kind of claims that Alec, you know, maybe did some moving around at Almeda before he went into the house. And Buster says, we didn't park up front. We parked in the back because that's where the bedrooms were. So I did think that that put maybe some doubt. I mean, in my mind, and possibly jurors. Well, he he said they didn't always go back there because they showed a picture of the grass. There's no, it's not paved. It's not stone. He said they'd occasionally go back there uh, to park. And then on the cross, they said, "Well, you you say you point you parked here, and then implied that the GPS thing was a little bit further away, but still, I don't think it was enough to not make that doubt of okay, he might have pulled around to the back to do that, like like you said." And I want to go back to the point you said about uh, he talked about Alec showering and changing clothes a lot. He he, I, not body shame, but what battery basically was saying, my dad's a fat guy, and he sweats a lot because he said, yeah, he was, he, was he bigger than he's like, yeah, he was like 65. And, and, and so he changed clothes and took a shower. It was June in the low country. It's humid as H E double hockey sticks. Now I want to stick with the clothes for a, a, a minute here. Uh, do you have some thoughts on, there was a lot of talk about the clothes specifically to what he was wearing in the Snapchat video and specifically to where the clothes might've gone. Yeah, I mean, he said that in the aftermath of Maggie and Paul's death, that basically Alec was all over the place. He was staying with John Marvin at times and his parents at times. He was living out of his car and, you know, suggested that clothing could definitely be in multiple places. Right. He mentioned like five or six places that Alec was staying. They never spent another night, an overnight at Moselle after the murders. However, crazy, on the 8th, Alec, Buster, and Buster's girlfriend all took showers at Moselle in the afternoon. And this the house, again, once again, not locked down. Now, that was kind of crazy. I mean, they, they, because they had gone in, in the early morning hours, they had gone back to Almeida to spend the night. And the next day, they went back to Moselle. And the three of them all took showers. I mean, it, again, it's it's creating doubt on SLED's investigation. Exactly. Well, even the fact that uh, Blanca said there was khakis and water by the you know shower. It could have been him the night before. It could have been that day. We don't know when that when that was. 
the also closed thing was, which is kind of just an argument over. He said that's a blue shirt. That's not sea foam. A little Blanca doubt there. So maybe it was a dip. Maybe implying that maybe he changed after the Snapchat. I mean, he well, one thing in the morning to work, Alec did, possibly, and then came home and changed into something to go out with Paul because that was not sea foam. And uh, then he uh, might have changed after that. Another thing that that was what Buster was 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 hinting at. And another thing I noticed was that Buster said he packed the bag and he didn't know. We heard from Blanca's testimony that there was a shirt on the floor, but Buster says he packed the bag and possibly that's, you know, he doesn't know if maybe a shirt fell on the floor. Right. I mean, there was a lot of activity. We, we called it out about Blanca saying about the pots being in the fridge. And that was answered later by uh, one of the attorneys of his firm was like, yeah, we put the things away people are coming and going moving things around but talk yeah. to me about the dog uh, scene well buster testified that bubba was at moselle and i'm not entirely sure why this came up but i think it may be to say that maggie wasn't lured to moselle because she would typically take the dog one of the dogs with her i guess i mean I, i'm just making an educated guess of this. So I'm not really entirely sure what they're saying, but there has been a lot of mention, especially to Bubba. So I think we'll hear more maybe in closing arguments about what the dogs mean to this whole scenario. Because they do keep bringing it up. They brought it up to the, the kennel guy and they made him specifically say which dogs were in which kennel. And we've heard, I have, I have an email. Let me read you an email from Kelly. And let's see. She says, hello, Matt. I've been following the case since the beginning. I'm a regular vacationer in SC, and I feel it is my second home. I always drive to Charleston, then through that area, onto Buford, Hilton, and Savannah. My question is, during the Snapchat video, it seems like Bubba the dog must have been running loose because he had caught the chicken. I think she means the actually the 844 FaceTime video, or the, uh, the video right? That's when the yeah. dog caught the chicken. If the murders happened right after the video, who put Bubba away? Was he running loose? Where was he? I doubt random murderers would put him away. Was there any reference to this by prosecutors or SLED? And the fact that Bubba is rambunctious, right? See, they've mentioned that a couple of times. Yeah, it has come up multiple times. I uh, also want to mention that Buster claimed to have been with Alec the entire time. So there was no time for Alec to wrap up a gun or guns and a tarp or a rain poncho or whatever and take it to Almeida. That was the implication there. One more important thing about Buster, which will come up again as we talk about these other testimony, is he said his dad had said multiple times they did him so bad. And that's why he, he said that's what he said in that video where they said, which I don't think is a big deal what he said, and I don't think it's convinced anybody. But this comes up again that Alec kept telling people they did him so bad. They did him so bad. So let's go to the shooting incident reconstruction, accident reconstruction, acoustics engineering fellow that took the stand. And uh, Seton, what did you take away? I mean, there are a few things. In this person who knows physics, physics is difficult for me to understand. Please don't send me messages about not being able to understand physics because I'm not going to be able to. But according to this person's reconstruction is that the person would have had to 
only have been five three or so. Yeah, five two to five four. On his projections of of it, that we've gotten a ton of messages about it. I'm still sorting through it. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about some other things, maybe about some other vehicles that could have possibly been involved. But I mean, what was your takeaway from it? Did you completely understand it? Yeah, I mean, I, I I understood it. I don't know if it held up under cross. I mean, we should point out that you're not paying attention. Though. We don't know. I shouldn't say not paying attention. But Alec is six four, so the shooting incident guy goes to five two or five four, and so if you're a juror, you might think, okay, maybe he's not accurate. But is he a foot off of where he thinks he, he followed? What was weird though is. They had asked this guy, you know, did anybody else do that? Why did nobody else do this test? Why didn't Sled do this test that this guy did? Which was basically, he found places that the bullet went through in the bird uh, quail cage area, the dog kennel, and lined up basically a line of sight to where the bullets would have gone and done. That he took different size people to try to figure out what would be the most likely size of person if they held it at, down at their hip. Uh, and then across, the they got to him a little bit by saying, "Okay, could the guy have been on the ground?" Yeah, I noticed that too. But I want to go back to where you said, "Why did Sled not do some of these things?" He found a, a part of the bullet, or what do you call it, a, a pellet, yeah. nine pellets. He found part of a pellet in a tree. How much longer? Do you, how much longer was this after? I mean, he visited Moselle much, much after this accident. He found a pellet in a tree, which was much after Sled had wrapped up all of their stuff. And they found one in the window. You found one in the window. Yeah, in the windowsill. Well, then we'll get to more of what Sled left behind when we get to one of his other witnesses. But the the height thing, I thought they did a pretty good job on Cross opening it up to some possibilities, or did they even mention, is that where they mentioned the golf cart? Um, they mentioned they mentioned the gun could be below the kneecap. But here's the thing. It doesn't make sense if it's Alec that he would be on the ground, right? If the, if, the, if the theory goes that he shoots Paul, gets a different gun, and shoots Maggie three or four times, depending on the, how many uh, wounds there were, but and that, with, within three feet. That means he'd have to be laying on the ground, call her over to get close, and shoot her. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So the lying on the ground thing doesn't make but, but they brought up possibly in a vehicle, a lower angle. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, also, the other thing I took away from the guy was uh, the, the audio test he did. He's an acoustics engineer. He did a test. In a nutshell, it's this. If Alec was in the house with the TV on even lowly, he would not have been able to hear the gunshots from 381 yards away in Moselle. I felt like that part was effective. I'm not sure about this height stuff. Maybe I could be swayed one way or another if I'm presented this and I could. But I thought that the, the audio stuff was effective for the defense. Well, they're obviously going to say admit to him being there, which they can't fight. And they're going to say, but then he left and went back to the house. Maybe he was even in the shower. He didn't hear the gunshots because people would assume, we, people have said all along, well, he would have heard the gunshots. But it takes you 45 seconds to a minute to get back to the house. And then 
this guy says you can't hear it. I mean, there was some argument whether how big the trees were and whatnot, but I thought it was pretty uh, effective. And one thing that the prosecution did, they brought up, well, if he was outside the house when he heard it, and he's like, yeah. So he's outside the house, he hears it. Inside the house, he doesn't. It's a, it's a splitting thing. Oh, and I, I did find it humorous that he, not humorous, I guess, but eh, maybe, that the uh, prosecution kept saying, a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old, because the kid, the, the, the body, the person, the shooter supposed to be 5'2", they kept referring to him as a 12-year-old. So the 12-year-old, and the defense would go like, he never said he was a 12-year-old, but he's 5'2". Uh, they just kept referring to him as a 12-year-old. But then Julian uh, had a law clerk stand up who was a woman who was 5'2". But we well, let's not this. discriminate on short people. <laughs> well, that's funny because on court uh, TV last night, Vinny brought it up, and he's like, how tall are the Walterboro Cowboys? I said, they don't call them the little Cowboys. Really. That's, they'd, be, they'd be taking this personally. You better not call them short. Um, we don't want to come in after us. So let's move to testimony that happened on Wednesday. Seton, what uh, happened? Day 22. Woo! Very first thing in the morning, we heard from both sides about possibly bringing Alec on the stand. And they talked about limiting the scope of his testimony and not being able to be cross-examined, especially on these financial crimes, because they're still pending. Yes. And they wanted to keep the, the, the questions limited because once Alec takes the stand, he cannot plead the fifth. I mean, once he answers a question, he's got to answer all questions. He's got to answer them all or answer none. And so uh, they don't want him necessarily answering financial questions because that'll be used against him when he faces those charges later. And there's a hundred of them or something. So they could begin, you know, he could be basically on trial for that at the same time. So they were hoping they could limit it. And the judge did say he's going to take it as a question by question thing. He actually said, Judge Newman said, it's unheard of for the court to issue an order as to the scope of testimony before. So he's going to take it as it comes. And you would say you had to give a percentage of uh, the possibility of him being on the stand? Oh, my gosh. I'm not a betting person, but uh, I yes, I am. 50-50. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm going to go, well, our, our buddy uh, Riley Benson and uh, Charleston uh, TV down there tweeted it's happening. Just tweeted that a little while ago. So somebody's feeding him information uh, for a reason. Um, well, so you might see him. And we should talk about the fact that that's one of the things a defendant, you have the right, no matter what your attorney advises you of, to take the stand. So if he wants to take the stand, he can, and we've heard lots of testimony about his credibility. We've also heard lots of testimony about the fact that Alec knew how to read a room and work work people. So he might think he might can sway some jurors by his ability to work the room. Um, I want to give uh, Riley Benson uh, from WCBD and Real Riley Benson on Twitter. Uh, yeah, well, he's the only one who can explain why he never told people he was at the kennel. That's the, he's the only one who can answer that. And that is a huge question. Yes. 
So after we heard from the judge, Newman, who said he's going to take this as it comes, we hear from a witness for the defense, Mark Ball, who is a 34-year-long friend of Alec Murdoch. And very obvious that he pretty much hates Alec Murdoch. There's no doubt about that. However, he does go into detail about the night of June 7th, right, Seton? Yeah, and you know what? That's probably a really good thing is is he you couldn't tell if he was a witness for the defense or the prosecution. He nope. which I think actually probably are the best witnesses because they are going to say what they think and they again, they're not there for the defense or they're not there for the prosecution and I think those are the w- witnesses that the jurors are really going to consider highly. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in, and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Loop. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh, no. Oh, yes. But fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. Um, a, a few things. He really questioned what happened the night of the murders. He talks about when he got there, uh, Sheriff Buddy Hill had said we need to block the road off, which apparently never happened. And then all these people show up. He also talks about the water that was found on Paul. He thought that was, you know, really disrespectful. And just how many people came that night? I mean, he actually mentions Gregory Alexander, who is the police chief of Yemisee that we've heard a lot about. He showed up. Um, it, it just, he seemed to question, you know, they were allowed to go back into the house. And he said that he was the one who actually put the pots of food that were left on mm-hmm. the stove by Blanca. He, Blanca, yeah. he put those in the fridge. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, and I also, uh, his testimony about seeing the crime scene 
and and because John, I think John Marvin or Randy had tried to clean it up, but they couldn't. It was just you know, obviously too gruesome. And he goes in there and he calls the coroner for some help. So he goes in there and he finds a piece of Paul's skull the size of a baseball. He sees pellets everywhere, and he's like, "What? This this crime scene secure?" No, he, he he questions them. He said he felt like he was walking across a grave. That's a quote. And he asked Sled, you know, do you need to, you know, look at some of these things? They're like, oh, no, we processed it. I mean, it, And they even talked to the uh, local sheriff, Buddy Hill. And he's like, are you sure, Buddy? And uh, Buddy's like, yeah, they said you can go in there, so do what you got to do. Another thing I thought was weird, he talks about this cooler that we've heard a little bit about before. Yes. And there were beer cans around the cooler. But also said that he saw an employee pull up. There was also a vehicle that didn't have a license plate. And there was a jug of Clorox. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We, they didn't really delve much more into that. But I thought possibly we would hear more about this cooler. Yeah. The- and uh, well, the truck ended up being C.B. Rose. So that kind of throws in. I mean, if you're going to start saying there might have been people near the scene and just a little shred of doubt, like start naming names and people that look suspicious just to get in the juror's head, whether or not they even were near the scene at the time, uh, is, is a strategy, I would assume. Well, and Ball also testifies that when he listened back to that, that 911 call about I, they did him so bad. He says he believes that Alec said they. Well, he also said that Alec um, had said that same sentence multiple times, just like Buster did. And he said that he found it odd that Alec kept going, they did him real bad. They did him real bad. Uh, sort of spot, does Alec does, does know it's a they? But then again, you assume it's a they, maybe, well, if you look at the scene. And a few other things that are of note of this testimony was what more than a few but one he said that at least three times Alec didn't you know basically lied to him about this 844 video yeah and another thing that i saw was he was inconsistent about whose body he checked first for vital signs Alec was inconsistent yes yes but uh, and then when asked you know did he know him? He said he he says he wasn't really sure if he ever really knew Alec. I think that was huge for the prosecution. You agree? Uh, absolutely, especially if they're going to try to bring Alec to the stand. Here's his friend of thirty plus years. He was a partner in the law firm, and your very good friend says, "I don't, I don't really think I ever knew him." And then they go into all these financial crimes and he's a liar and all these things. If they put Alec on the stand, there's such massive credibility issues. Yes, uh, I, I will say, though, that there was a point where Ball said, even though he kept saying, I, I didn't know this guy, he ruined us and all this stuff. He did say at some point, and I don't know if the jury hung on to these words, but there was a time where he was like, no, I'm not saying that just because he did those things, he did this thing. Uh, I don't know that resonated as well as, as the times he kept saying, I didn't know this, this jackass. I think he referred to him at one point. He did. And I, but again, I don't think he was willing to take the leap as far as saying, I think that Alec killed 
tagging call. Well, yeah, like they didn't, couldn't, wouldn't want to ask him that. That's for sure. Uh, the golf cart comes up again. Yes, he was asked by the prosecution if he saw a golf cart. And he says that he did see a golf cart in front of the house parked up to the left side. Now, this is starting to be mentioned more and more. And the question has always been from us and others is, Alec was at the kennel. We know he didn't drive according to the GPS and whatnot from his car. He didn't drive his vehicle. So how did he go from the house after his nap to the kennels and back? And that dude, they just talked about being a sweater. So he's not walking. So we've got like a side-by-side. There's an ATV. There's old pickup trucks. And there's a golf cart. Now the golf cart becomes more and more into play. If you look at the angle of the guy that uh, is supposed to be five foot two or four, that the one expert says, then maybe the angle of shooting out of a golf cart is a low angle that would appear to be a shorter man. So that's, I think, you know, and it could, of course, the jury's not seeing, hearing this unless it happens in closing, but the theory could be in the golf cart, shoots Paul. Shoots, you know, flies down the, you know, that whatever thirty yards or so. Maggie's there and says, "Yeah, Maggie, what was that or whatever?" And uh, pulls out the, the the AR. He has to be within three feet for those first few shots, and fires at Maggie. It's how the golf cart finishes. Drives to the house. That could be the theory, and also the golf cart could be used to get rid of Maggie's gun. Well, that that is, and that will come. We'll talk about that when we talk about the testimony of the cell phone expert. Um, but again, I also feel like possibly there's some issues. Why didn't Sled maybe check that golf cart out? Or, you know, why wasn't that ever processed? Did they check to see if there was any sort of blood or anything on the golf cart? We had, we heard from a Sled officer early on about an ATV that they noticed there was possibly some blood. It was, and they said, well, they noticed this blood, but when asked on cross if it was ever tested for human blood because it was a vehicle used for hunting they said no and remember when we toss up a theory like that it has no bearing on what the jury will come back with because they're not hearing this theory unless they're not yeah, yeah that's important to remember that you have to separate what is being said in court and theories and stuff you hear on TV or a podcast or whatever, when you judge on how the jury will rule in this case. Other, uh, anything else from his uh, law partner? No, I think that, I think that's kind of the sentiment of it. Next, we heard from Cook, who was the attorney representing Alec Murdoch in the boating accident. And he was there basically, again, to cross one of those boxes off from the defense that there wasn't this big pressure with a boating accident looming for him to reveal his finances. He was there, to, and it went back and forth. And I think it's it, it's interesting of how the jury will take it, because I don't know, you listen to it. He says, well, we really didn't have these financial things. That wasn't a big deal for us. It would have been months later. You know, and then on cross, they said, well, wouldn't eventually he had have to reveal these finances? And 
the attorney says, well, possibly. So again, you, you just never know how the jury is going to take that. Yeah, I think it took a lot of wind out of the sale of Alec was in crunch time for the boating accident because the guy seemed legitimately like there's there was nothing to be worried about. <laughs> there, there, nothing, there's no worries about the finances. They weren't going to come out. Highly unlikely. And if it did, it was going to be a while. It was kind of funny during the testimony. They were asking him if uh, on cross, they were asking this attorney if he was present when Alec said to Tinsley, hey, Bo, you know, why are you doing me like that kind of thing? And the attorney who's a defense attorney said, well, I don't get invited to that one. And he, the whole audience kind of did giggle. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, who else? We did have an expert who testified about shoe prints and just how crime scenes are supposed to be handled. You thought that it wasn't effective. I thought, well, it did kind of go against a lot of the things that have been brought into question by the defense about the handling of the crime scene by SLED. That's why I thought it was not a big deal. It was just another example of SLED not doing anything. I mean, it didn't really show that they missed anything specifically or that they, in fact, it gave the prosecution a chance to say that mark on, on Maggie's leg could have been by a, uh, a four-wheeler. Yeah, I mean, but I did think he kind of called into question he asked if they had taken fingerprints in the feed room. He asked, he was asked if there was, there should have been more work. And he said that there should have been much more work done. And again, he's a paid expert. So you take it, take it for what it's worth. I mean, it was just like two or three hours of us knowing again, that's that sled probably did a sloppy job. Their camera person was bad and nothing. I just thought, much to do about nothing, but maybe maybe just another way to make them think Sled missed the real killer or whatever. Uh, yeah, they, uh, and there were missed opportunities. Another thing that was kind of comical, just stuck out to me, was during Cross, Metters was very close, as he has been with a lot of the other witnesses, to, while he's questioning, he's kind of standing in the doorway right next to them, and the defense objected and Judge Newman said, well, this is extremely unusual and kind of said, you know, you really shouldn't be this close to a witness. And then Metters said, well, yesterday the defense aimed a gun at all of us. And everyone just kind of laughed because I guess yesterday uh-huh. during the examination, Harpootley had picked up a gun and kind of pointed it towards the <laughs> towards the defense and the rest of the crowd. So. Everyone kind of got a little bit of a giggle out of that. No, not kind of. He did point him at it, and he said, uh, tempting. <laughs> made a little yeah. joke. About it, it, was, was, it, was, it, was, it was pretty, uh, I don't know, not, not appropriate or probably in good taste. That's a long trial. Long trial, though, you got to have some like moments. Okay, so Barbara, let's talk about Barbara. So Barbara Mixon was a caretaker for Miss Libby at the Almeida home. And she was actually mentioned in testimony about this kind of drug connection last week. What, what, do you remember what that exactly was? Oh, that he, he just asked her, Alec had asked her at one point to get him a couple of pills or something. I didn't realize that she was a, a very uh, much older, older woman. 
but yes, that's 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 what I, I he he said in, when he was in rehab. They, the trooper was asking questions like, "Who else have you gotten drugs from?" Uh, I got a couple pills or something like that from uh, Barbara Mixon once. What I think was the most interesting part of her testimony was the fact that she had asked Alec to come to Almeida because Miss Libby was agitated. Agreed. Because there has been this question or implication that Alec would never go there at nine o'clock at night, which he did, which is nine or six. He actually got there at like nine twenty something. So that has been kind of out there hovering in certain testimonies. And so she kind of puts that at rest saying, I told him that she's got to come see the mom. The mom is agitated. She has Alzheimer's and her husband had just been sent to Savannah hospital. So he wasn't going to be there that night. So she gives Alec a reason to go to Almeida that night. So that's off the table of him just going there for an alibi and still might be, but it's not as clear cut. Yes. She also said she never saw a blue tarp or a raincoat ever in no. the room. So that was definitely a blow for the defense that she did not see these items. The final witness of the day is all about cell phones. Yes, we heard a lot about cell phones. Um, and I, I mean, the crux of this testimony was basically... In my opinion, you may have heard something different from than I did, but in my opinion, the crux of this testimony was to say that there was no way this this phone, Maggie Mur- Murdoch's phone, was disposed without an orientation change. And, and it was also no way that Ellick did it because, according to the, this expert who was for defense, uh, when he drove past the place where Maggie's phone was found, or put it put better this way. When his car was in the driveway, that is when the phone kind of went black or whatever. So there's no way, as this goes back to the very beginning in their opening arguments, he called him Houdini, can't be two places in once. And that was the purpose of this to say, Alec couldn't have been, couldn't have thrown Maggie's phone and been in his car. It just doesn't line up time-wise. It kind of does. If you, if he didn't, if the phone didn't have an orientation change, I think it is possible. But what this witness is testifying is you move your phone a little bit, it comes on, and there, if you're chucking it out a window, there would have been an orientation change. Matt, explain this to us. Okay, and Dwayne can help me too. So there, there's two things. There's an orientation change when you go from landscape to portrait, and there is... Uh, the wake-up feature when your backlight comes on, you know, you pick up your phone, even if it's not your phone, it'll it'll light up the screen. So those are two different things. Now, when the screen is not lit up, it will not tell you whether or not the phone went from landscape to portrait. It only records when the screen's lit up. So the important part that I, that the defense was trying to get through with this witness, and Dwayne, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's possible, um, that Alec couldn't be in two places at once, because, first of all, I couldn't do it on the way home because there was no movement on Maggie's phone after 9.31. Nothing, zero, zip, nothing. It would be virtually impossible to do it on the way home from, from Almeida because after 9.31, the phone does nothing. The phone uh, 
if he's going to set it somewhere or if he's going to throw it out the window or whatever the case may be, if you want it to be at the time where it's moving around, Alec is in the driveway, moving in the driveway of his home at Moselle. At the same time, I think the prosecution's trying to say the phone was thrown out into the grass. Defense is saying it couldn't be in two places at once. Couldn't have thrown it because he was at a different place according to the GPS. Dwayne, did you think that was what they're going after? Yeah, I think I think so. But you also need to consider what operating system was on Maggie's phone. Mm-hmm. Because the backlight may not necessarily come on without a deliberate upward movement. And I mean, you could try this with your phones. Right. Well, and I think that what we're discussing here is exactly how it's not clear. Because see, you're not following at all. Uh, how's the jury going to follow? Uh, I assume they're going to paint a perfect picture when they, when they do their uh, closing arguments. Well, a few things, though, that, that, that they also, that this witness said is, A, the phone was not put in this Faraday bag, which is a bag that, I guess, kind of prevents the cell phone from being used. And we've heard about this Faraday bag a few times. So I did not put it in a Faraday bag. Mm-hmm. And the witness testified that if it had been put into a Faraday bag, possibly GPS data could have been recovered and mm-hmm. maybe we wouldn't be, we'd have more information and this whole crime would be solved. I mean, they're again, creating doubts. Um, there was one other thing that I thought was really a big thing. And y'all tell me what you think that was brought up on cross was about, a golf cart being used to transport Maggie's fan. Exactly. There's that golf cart thing again, or a side-by-side or a four-wheeler. They keep bringing it up. So it would make sense that I guess they could, what they're saying is he, if they believe Alex the killer, he transported her phone around wherever he needed to get to it with, uh, with his golf cart. They would never know. I assume they're going to try to wrap this all up for us on closing arguments and try to, both sides are going to tell us what their version of events, especially the prosecution. They're going to tell us how this all happened. Well, it's Alec Murdoch day soon because all signs point to him taking the stand. Uh, anything else, Seton? No, I think that's it. If, okay. if he does take the stand, we'll be back with you tomorrow. Right, go uh, have a glass of wine and get some sleep. Yep. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Always grateful. We'll talk soon, friend. It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh, no. Oh, yes. But fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 